This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Tuesday morning, everybody. I am Glenn the Geek from Ocala, Florida. And I'm Karen Chatton from Gardnerville, Nevada, and you are listening to Endurance Day on Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for September 10th, episode 741. This episode is brought to you by Action Rider Tap. Good morning, Horse World. When your start time's on Saturday and your finish time's on Sunday, and it doesn't get much better than best condition, and completing the challenge is the challenge, you're an endurance rider. Let me ride through the wide open country that I love, but don't pass me in. Let me be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the murmur of the well, good morning, Karen. Welcome back to the show. Good morning to all the listeners out there who are joining us this morning. We appreciate you being here. Now, Karen, you really lied in your introduction. You are, well, you are from Gardnerville, North uh, Nevada, but you are Northern not there Nevada. now, right? I am not. I'm in southern Utah. I'm camped near Bryce Canyon National Park in Red Canyon, in the forest. <laughs> <laughs> and you've you've had I can't wait for today's show because yesterday when we had our pre-show meeting, Karen was telling us a little bit about some of the adventures you've had in the last 2 weeks alone. So we have we've had a lot of um a lot of fun times, a lot of adventure. Endurance riding is never boring. Well, you know, that's one of the misconceptions that I'm hoping we can uh, disprove today is that endurance riders spend all this time in the saddle and it must get boring. After what you've told us yesterday (laughs) and what we're going to hear this morning, I think we're going to prove to everybody that endurance riding is not boring. Never, never. And things happen that you just can't possibly make up. (laughs) (laughs) That's because you're dealing with Mother Nature, other people. The horses are fine, right? They're the easy part. Yeah, they kind of are, you know, my, with me, it's uh, my my rig. Like right now, I, I just had uh, rode the Grand Canyon ride five days and 250 miles. And then I, I drove up here to this camp for the next ride um, because I'm staying down in Utah for the whole month to do a series of rides. And after I got here, my truck wouldn't start, so I had to have it towed. So I'm... I'm left here camping out in the forest, me and my dog and my two horses and my trailer and their truck. So, um, but I'm still able to help with trail marking and getting the next ride set up. And we're not, you know, certainly not bored. And I was planning on being here anyway. So it, um, it's an inconvenience, but it's not as bad as it could be. Well, let's find out from Jennifer what's coming up on today's show, because you have some great guests planned for today, and then we'll talk a little bit more about your misadventures over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Jennifer, what's coming up? Today on Endurance Day with Karen Chatton and Friends, brought to you by Action Rider Tech, we decipher the official acronym of endurance riding, the N-A-T-R-C, 
And then we snack on some nutrition information, compliments of endurance competitor and veterinarian, Dr. Susan Darlinghouse. Well, thank you, Jennifer. Appreciate that. Now, before we get to doing anything else, we have something very important we must do right now, and it's this. Happy birthday, Karen. It's your birthday today. Oh, thank you. I'm sure you found out from Facebook. Yes, I did. It's Facebook's an amazing thing. I wouldn't know anybody's birthdays if it wasn't for Facebook. I know it, and I never tell anybody. But obviously, they figured it out on Facebook. Well, happy birthday to you. Now, now, unless your dog is baking the cake or there's friends there with you, there's going to be no cake in the middle of the forest in Bryce Canyon. Well, we probably will do something later today because I am here with several friends. Okay, good. So you're not alone out yeah. there anyway. <laughs> no, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy birthday. A lot of- thank you. Well, thank you. Well, now tell us, now last week you had quite the adventure. You you headed out to the Grand Canyon. Now, everybody thinks about riding in the Grand There's one thing we think about riding the Grand Canyon. We've had the people on that run the concession that takes the donkeys and mules you can ride down the Grand Canyon. We've had those people on the show here before, and we've talked about that. But we've never really talked about the fact that you can go riding in the Grand Canyon sort of on your own. So tell us what... What was that trip? Was it an actual endurance ride? And what is it like? It must The views must be amazing. It is. And we're on the north rim. We ride mainly on the north rim and also on the east rim a little bit. This year, you know, and it's kind of ironic, the place that we camp in is called Dry Park. But it's anything but dry. At least this year it wasn't. And when I got there, it was dry. And I got camped and set up and everything was great. But it started to rain a day or so after that, and a lot of the people coming into the camp had trouble. Their rigs, you know, most of our rigs are fairly heavy, and they come in across the mud in the in the meadow, and they sink, and then they're stuck. So many of the riders came in, and they ended up basically parking where they got stuck. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it was sort of our motto for the month, I guess, is embrace the mud. Um so people were busy, you know, pulling others out and tow trucks were coming and getting everybody, you know, not just into camp, but out of camp after the ride was over, um, which, you know, it's all entertainment, I guess, the way we look at it. And um, But the best part is we're, we're in a really beautiful location with just incredible trails and awesome scenery. And it was just a, a really fun ride. We only got rained on one of the days. Um, really, you know, pretty good. The rest were all beautiful. The last day of the ride ended up being the best day. So some of the riders that left because of the weather, they really missed out. Now, what kind of ride? So do you ride down into, by the way, where you were, is that is that considered Indian territory there? Because I know they have part of that, that section. No, it's mainly all national forest. Okay. And we're on... You know, designated trails, a lot of the trail around the points on the north rim, it's all a nice single track trail. And, you, you know, you ride along through the forest and each time you, you know, come out on one of the points, they're kind of like fingers. You ride around, you get to see the views of the Grand Canyon and it's just, it's really um, a spectacular ride. Are you actually going down into it at all? You, are you doing the donkey thing or not? 
No, not really. We're mainly up on the rim of it, up on the up on top. Um, okay. You know, you're not really going up and down. You know, there's not a huge amount of climbing. It's a little more of a, a gradual, uh, or as far as the difficulty goes on the um, elevation, it's not too bad. So, um, so that allows you to just enjoy the scenery and the, um, you know, the great atmosphere of just being there. Boy, that must. What a dream. But are there parts of Go ahead, Jen. Sorry. Are there parts of the trail where you're trotting along and the pebbles fall off the trail and go bouncing um, 10,000 feet down into the canyon? Is he parked or not? Well, you know, it could be. I always just remind myself that my horse doesn't want to die today either. So we, <laughs> I always keep my outside leg, you know, pressed against whichever horse I'm on so that we stay as far away from the edge as possible. But most of those trails, you know, you're six or eight or ten feet away from any edges. You're not that close. Okay, I feel better now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jennifer was, I was not afraid up for you, that <laughs> <laughs> you know that is a dream, though, for for every horse person would be to to ride, you know, at, uh, up up above the Grand Canyon and have those views as you come around a corner. What a what a cool thing that is! It sure is. Yep. Now you it did sure two hundred. I was just going to say you did two hundred and fifty miles of riding there last week. That's a long time in the saddle. It is. I did, um, my horse Chief did 150 of those miles, and then Bo did 100, and on the first day, she reached uh, 7,000 lifetime miles. Wow, congratulations on that, too. Yeah, thank you. Now, how many many horses, when you're going to be gone like this, so you're going to be gone for a total of almost six weeks, uh, how many horses do you bring along uh, on on that kind of trip? I have just two horses, Chief okay. and Bo, and I tend to alternate them. They both also help mark some of the trail, so I tend to, you know, just alternate back and forth between the two, and then that's what I do during the ride, too. And here they both already have been out for a full day marking trail at the upcoming ride that I'm going to be doing, the Outlaw and Virgin. Well, tell us about that. You just mentioned marking trail, and I saw you post that on Facebook, too. What exactly does that mean? Well, it, Mainly, it, it's it's similar to doing the ride because we're going over the same trail, but we're hanging up trail markers on clothespins so that when the riders are, are um, actually doing the ride during the competition, they can follow the trail markers. Sometimes we put up signs and pie plates and stuff like that. And of course, and, and where it's raining, it does no good to put arrows on the ground because they're just going to wash out. But we try to you know hang three ribbons up if there's a turn. And then another ribbon or two further down after the turn so that they know they made the turn correctly. And we just um, also have to do some of the trail work. Like the other day I was out and we came up on a great big, huge tree just down across a single track trail. So then we had to find a way to get around it because it was just too big and it was too far up in the forest to get a chainsaw in reasonably to clear it. So, you know, that. You know, there's always more work involved a lot of times. Most of the things that we need to move off the trail are pretty easy to do, you know, with one or two of us. And so a lot of times we might mark, you know, even if it's only like um, day before yesterday, it was 16 miles of trail, but it it took a little longer because we had to do some trail clearing and, and work like that. 
Now, so is it customary at these at these endurance rides that the riders will actually help in marking the trail ahead of time? And I assume you're marking it for for the endurance ride, or or is it they usually get volunteers to do it? You know, how does that usually work? Right. Yes, and and I'm you know I'm part of ride management, so I'm you know helping with getting the stuff set up and doing a lot of the other paperwork and things like that ahead of the ride, and then I post the results afterwards. Sign busy, you know, before the ride and after the ride. Plus, you know, being here and helping out with the trail marking and stuff, it's just great experience for the horses. It keeps us all fit and in shape. So, you know, that's why I think one time on one of the previous shows I was on, you asked me about my conditioning, and I don't really go and do any specific conditioning because my horses get plenty of riding with all the trail work that we do. Jennifer, that's something you could volunteer for with uh, Fat Old Beaker, because you you don't have to try and make time. You guys can go out and help mark trails for the endurance rides around here. We, we can mark trails and clear brush like nobody's business. He's so fat, he could clear the brush just riding through the trail. That's right. <laughs> you sure can. <laughs> I assume that, uh, you know, just like any other show, that endurance rides are always looking for volunteers as well. Definitely, yes. There's a lot of work involved, and we've got, there are several of us here, and we've been going out in mainly teams of two. Uh, We had uh, two people doing one of the trails yesterday, and then two others doing a different trail, and so we all, um, you know, sort of split it all up and go do different sections at a time in order to get it all done. Um, The ride coming up starts on Thursday. And because of the rain, it kind of, you know, delays things a little bit. It normally doesn't rain as much as it has been this month here. Um, The good thing is, is after I had my truck towed and and I was left here in camp, I put my awning out and I've been collecting about 80 gallons of water every day off of my awning by lining buckets up underneath. So I haven't had to worry about running out of horse water. Well, that's good. You don't have a truck, so you're not going to be. <laughs> I know I can't go get water, but it's coming to me. <laughs> you know, I didn't think about that because you guys truly aren't camping in a campground. You're like camping in the forest. We are. Uh huh. We're totally uh, self, totally self-contained. Um, so, what do you usually do for water? Uh, you know, water is obviously a big concern for humans and and horses, especially the horses because they have to drink so much every day. You can't carry enough with you to spend a month, you know, in southern Utah. So, what do you do usually? Do you, is it collecting rainwater? Is it uh, driving yeah. to town? Yes, normally we have a water truck, but it also broke down. It's at the same shop <laughs> as my truck, <laughs> and so. Um, yeah, it's kind of funny. I'm on it, but not really. (laughs) (laughs) You do have food along, right? I mean, you do, you did bring some food along. Yes, we got plenty of food. Um, using the awning, I'm collecting, like I said, a ton of water every day. I'm filling up all my buckets over and over. Some, uh, I have no shortage of water. Normally though, I, I have actually quite a few, um, I have a large capacity to carry water between my truck and my trailer because I'm used to going on these rides for extended times and I've done the cross country rides a couple of times. So I've got, you know, I can carry easily a couple hundred gallons of horse water with me. 
Well, now you got to tell me this. You got to tell the listeners the story you started to tell us yesterday. Uh, maybe maybe leave out names, but uh, okay. it's not every day you go on a trail ride in the beautiful Grand Canyon and you're out there and the SWAT team shows up uh, into your camp and starts knocking on your doors. So tell us about that. In the, in the middle of the night. Yes, we had, you know, it seems like almost any time we have a disturbance or a disagreement, it often involves horse water, ironically enough. And at the Grand Canyon ride, we had a couple of riders that started out having a disagreement and got into a little bit of a scuffle over what started out as um, horse water. And it escalated, and they ended up in a fight. <laughs> and what, what, one of them got um, injured. She got a sh- quite the shiner on her eye. Oh, geez. And so That's she, a serious... Oh, they, were, a- they were wailing on each other then. <laughs> well, they were... I, I, From what I understand, they were throwing buckets back and forth, and I, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure exactly what happened, but one of them did call the police to make a report, and we thought, well, just, you know, they'll send a sheriff out to take a report or something, and so, you know, this was 8 o'clock at night. So about midnight... <laughs> Here comes an entire fully dressed SWAT team of six guys <laughs> that's knocking on the trailer and the motorhome doors in camp, waking people up, trying to find, you know, the, the people involved in the scuffle. And, uh, so, you know, not it's not very often at an endurance ride you have a SWAT team show up in the middle of the night, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> people will be people, won't they? It doesn't matter where or when they're going to be people. Right, right. And then these these particular lighters probably would have never been parked next to each other had they not been stuck in the mud. <laughs> <laughs> and by that point, they'd all gone to bed. So it's like, <laughs> it's yes, uh huh, uh huh. <laughs> Well, they had to assemble the SWAT team, you know, they had to get them from home, they had to drive all the way out there. Did they end up at, right, did, did they end up arresting anybody? I just have to know. I don't think so. I think they yeah. just took a report, you know, and and, I, and yeah, we we were like, you know, we're 20 miles out on a dirt road. <laughs> Again, in the middle of the forest. So maybe they just needed some training experience or something. I, or maybe they'd been driving around <laughs> for 3 hours trying to find you. <laughs> That could be. <laughs> they were really pissed by the time they got to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that doesn't happen every day. Well, now tell us, you do have an endurance tip for us this week. Well, I do. And I was just thinking about this um, a day ago when I was packing up my horse to go mark the trail because I'm, um, you know, hanging uh, the ribbons on the clothespins are around a hay string that I put around my neck or the horse's neck so they're easy to grab. And and while I was attaching all this stuff to my horse, I was thinking, you know, about an important safety issue with our tack that I see a lot of riders doing it, when they put their tack on, they're not realizing that if their snaps are facing outwards, that if their horse rubs on something with their halter or their bridle or buzz collar and the snap is facing outwards, it can snap onto something like a bucket or another horse, or, you know, something that they're tied to. So my advice for, for that is to always make sure your snaps and clips are facing inward. That makes sense. So that they can't catch on something um, and get your horse hung up. And, and then I've seen many wrecks over the years caused from that sort of thing. So always check over your tack and make sure your 
fresh collar clips or, and your bridles or anything else that's attached to your horse um, is facing inward so that they can't get caught and get into trouble. Yeah, I imagine getting caught. I never, on... I never thought about that because uh, mm-hmm. the tack that you guys use um, commonly has more snaps on it than you would typically see on a horse that does eventing perhaps or, or barrel racing. The type right. of tack you use the Commonly, you, you snap on the bit or snaps where the reins are. And you're, I never uh-huh. thought about that, but if he just trots up to his little friend and goes, oh, you know, I have an itch right here, and he rubs his face on his neighbor's shoulder, he could suddenly sure. attach his bridle to his next-door neighbor's breastplate. That would yes, definitely and, be and, I, and you'd and be I, calling the SWAT team again. <laughs> there you go. And I've seen horses attach themselves to each other on numerous occasions. Or they rub on their bucket, and then now they've got a bucket attached. And now, it, you know, now it's chasing them, <laughs> no matter where they go. <laughs> Bad news, man. <laughs> it sure can be. So that was my tip for the day. Well, thank you for that. And, you know, we were you were telling us a story yesterday, too, that I wanted to get in here this morning. We had, I'm trying to remember who it was, we had a couple of endurance riders on, on Horses in the Morning or one of the shows, uh, a couple of years ago that had competed in what's the Philippines or somewhere down there in, in Asia somewhere uh-huh. for one of the world championships or whatever. And they had a lightning incident. Well, you had a little lightning incident. Tell us about that. Was that last week at the Grand Canyon? It was. And, and actually one of our guests that we're going to have on the show a little bit later this morning, she had a, a an even more close encounter with lightning up on the East Rim on the fourth day and all that her tell that story but you know my story really it wasn't too bad we were riding the close to, the closer and closer we got to the east rim i was counting from the flash of light so you know we heard the big booms of thunder and it got to within under two seconds that's never somewhere good. <laughs> but, no and we were heading right towards it so we just kind of got a move on and got out of there as quickly as we could to get off of that edge of the east rim. And, of course, as you're riding through the forest, you look around and you see all these trees that have previously been hit by lightning. And, you know, you're like, oh, no, we got to get moving. And, and so we got out of there in um, record time. And, and as we got farther and farther away from that edge of the rim, it got, you know, farther and farther away as far as the lightning and thunder went. But it was... Um, kind of a close call for a while there we were pretty nervous and and of course it was raining on us and the thunder was really loud it was right on top of us what do you do i mean do you just stay in the tack do you stay in the saddle are there ever points where you get out of the tack and hunker down somewhere just hoping and praying or what do you do you you can but i don't know if it's safer to be under a tree or out in the open because you see places where lightning has hit and it's not very selective it just goes where it wants to and you just hope your number's not up and I did ask my friend jokingly that I was riding with I said do you have metal shoes on your horse and she said yes and I said oh good because I've got boots on mine (laughs) another reason to use boots We're going to have to bring that up. We have uh, Kurt uh, Lander of Renegade Hoof Boots coming on a little bit later to talk to us about hoof boots and how important they are uh, for event or for endurance riders. We're going to have to make sure he adds that to the website as a selling point. Uh huh. (laughs) (laughs) I know. 
But, you know, we laugh oh, about gosh. it. This is a serious business. There were a couple riders killed last week uh, when they when they were on a trail ride and lightning hit. Oh, no. it, it actually hit it hit right near them, and they they both got zapped. The horses died, and they died. So it does oh, no. you know, it does happen, and it's something that I'm sure you guys think about a lot. Well, we do, you know, but we just, I guess we're risk takers and we're willing to be out there and, and do this. Just, I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I what's, can't explain what's, why. You know, I was thinking about all the, you talk about taking risks. You were riding at the Grand Canyon. Now you're in Utah and you're in the woods and you're out there in the middle of the forest and you are taking risks of all kinds, you know, between animals and snakes and, you know, all, all kinds of uh, creepy crawly things. What is the uh-huh. thing that you would say is your biggest risk uh, when you're out there? You know, even the best trained and best behaved horse can be dangerous really quickly. And I think it's, you know, being aware of safety issues with our own horses, but also with others. And, you know, I'm really proactive about trying to avoid accidents and some riders, you know, are accidents waiting to happen. And so you need to be, you know, fully aware of what's going on around you, not just your own horse, and try to be as safe as possible and avoid getting into a situation or into a group with others that may have horses that not get out of control and just, you know, keep yourself safe. So what you're saying, Karen, is just like every other discipline, be it eventing, Uh show hunters, or barrel racing, there is always that person. (laughs) (laughs) Stay away from them because they're an accident waiting to happen. Kind of, yes. (laughs) Every discipline has them, even casual pleasure trail riders. You go to the Uh big trail ride, everybody camps and goes for a pleasure trail ride around the mountainside and has a cookout in the evening. Even those rides mm-hmm. have that person. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it, yes. <laughs> That's funny. Jennifer, tell us a little <laughs> bit about our title sponsor today, Action Rider Tech. Action Rider Tech. This episode is brought to you by, as I said earlier, and Action Rider Tech is where you will find the largest selection of treeless saddles north of the equator and a fabulous selection of quality trail gear and endurance gear. At Action Rider Tack, they understand horses because they ride too, and they believe that time spent with your horse is never time wasted, but then you knew that too. Action Rider Tack customer Tina Padilla said, you have the best customer service and always answer all of my questions. This seems like the place I need to go. Products ship right away, and you have a lot of products to choose from. Thank you for all of your help throughout the years, and I'm a customer for life. And we want you to experience Action Rider Tech, too, so go to actionridertech.com, and if you enter the, the, the coupon code ACTION13 at checkout, you'll get free shipping on your order. So type in the, the code ACTION13, A-C-T-I-O-N-1-3, all one word, at checkout, and you can get free shipping at Action Rider Tack. They are always there for you and your horse. Thank you, Jennifer. And I know you have a product review of a product that uh, Action Rider Tack carries and that you use all the time, Karen. Yes, I do. And and this is a really easy product to review because it's something that I've used for 20 years. And 
And no matter what other new products come out that I try, I always end up going back to this one. And that's a Tokrat Woolback Saddle Pad. It is, uh, they're long lasting. They wear like iron. They're easy to clean. I can throw them in my washing machine and just let them dry. They're great because they're reversible because I do a lot of multi rides. I can use it one day and then turn it over and put the clean side on the horse's back. And then I don't have to have as many saddle pads with me or worry about, you know, putting the dirty pad on my horse's back. Plus, um, you know, they work great on every horse I've ever ridden. I've, I've never had any problems with them causing rubs or, um, you know, anything like that. So they're, they're a, a real convenient pad to use. You can get them with or without inserts. And they're just easy to take care of, and they last a long time. And like I said, I tried almost every other kind of pad that's out there, and you know, because I'm always looking for something that's better, and I always end up coming back to these same toe-cut back pads. Well, and one of the other nice things about these particular pads, and we used to sell them when we had our tack business back in the 90s. They had, uh, they just, uh, you know, really had come out then and were becoming very popular. And one of the reasons was is the price point is good. For, you know, between 80 and uh-huh. 125 bucks, you have yourself one mm-hmm. of these pads. And, you know, so many now are in the hundreds of dollars. So, so they're, they yeah. are affordable as well. Oh. Exactly. Yeah, many pads are up to, you know, two fifty, three hundred dollars And in my experience, I, I've yet to find anything that works as good or lasts as long. Well, good. So that's the that's the Toe-Clat Woolback Saddle Pad comes, Karen recommended. And I was thinking about this, too, as you were talking earlier. You said you rode 250 miles last week at the Grand Canyon. You rode, uh-huh. I was just calculating that out. You rode more than one week, more in one week than most of the average horse owners ride in a year. Probably. <laughs> Plus, I marked trails, so the horses also did, you know, quite a few more miles than that. So think about it. I mean, you actually did more in, one, in the saddle in one week than most riders will uh-huh. do riding three or four times wow. a week, you know, at an hour a shot uh-huh. uh, is what, you know, yep. usually the average person rides. So you, so for testing product, they should, if you're going to, if you have a brand new product coming to the market, you give it to some endurance riders to test because they're going to get, they'll, they'll test it in a, in a tenth of the time that anybody else will test it in. Exactly. And when you're doing day after day of, 50s on a horse, you really find out what works and what doesn't. I, I, yeah, I can imagine in everything from stuff you wear to the stuff the horses wear. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Very good. Well, we have your first guest. Why don't you introduce Johnny? And I know that there are some people that are waiting to, to hear Johnny that have posted on Facebook. So I know she has some fans. Oh, good. Yes, Johnny Jewell lives in Texas. She is a new track rider. She's coming on today to describe a little bit about track and competitive trail riding. She started riding when she was a junior at 15 years old back in 1976. She's ridden close to 5,000 miles on track rides and over 1,400 on AERC rides. She's won the President's Cup, which is one of the most prestigious awards in the sport of um, competitive trail riding. And she's traveled all around the country. She's done Tevis. She's won national championships. And so we are happy to have her join us today to tell us a little more about 
um, NATAC. So welcome, Johnny. Morning, Karen. Morning, Glenn. Good morning. She just aged you, you know. Uh, no. <laughs> I, know how, I know how old she is, and I think that someone's got a birthday, too. Yes, it is. And, you know, I don't know how old she is, so maybe before the end of this interview, you can you can age her, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well John, Johnny, describe a little bit, describe for our listeners about what NATRAC is. Um, NATRAC, uh, NATRC, North American Trail Ride Conference, um, founded in 61, so one of the oldest distance trail riding organizations. And where it differs from endurance, which is a um, a race of two places, our sport is a um, sport where both the horse and the rider are judged throughout the event. The horse on his condition, his soundness, um, manners, trailability, and all of those areas are scored. Yet the rider also has uh, judging, which is on their horsemanship as it pertains to trail riding. We're the only um, distance riding organization that also has a horsemanship aspect. Um, it's um, based over um, one or two days. Some rides are only one day, some are two. And the horse starts off with 100 points, and then throughout the event, as his condition changes, he has point deductions in, say, his metabolic or his soundness. Um, so it's where the endurance riders, many are familiar with a best condition judging at the end of the ride. Um, NACFC is sort of a best condition all weekend. See which horse fares the best through the whole weekend um, from the stress of the trail ride. Well, and how far and how fast do the horses go on these rides? We've got three different divisions. Um, the novice, for those new to the sport or very new to trail riding, um, they can do up to 40 miles over the two days. If it's a one-day ride, they're generally 15 to 20 miles and a slower pace, about four miles an hour pace. And that includes any water stops that you do or if you stop to let your horse graze. So it's, it's basically a, a walk with trot where say, the footing is really good. Um, the competitive pleasure division is the same speed and distance, but it's for more experienced riders that maybe don't want to go um, the longer and quicker pace of the open division or experienced riders starting new horses. And then open is 60 miles, about 50 to 60 miles over two days. Mm-hmm. And that pace is generally about five miles an hour, um, depending on the terrain. We've got so many different regions that in the more mountainous regions, it would be a slower pace. Down here in Texas, where we've got some flatter trails, it could be a, a quicker pace. Okay, and how would somebody get started in, in NATRAC? Um, the best way is to um, go online and find out more about it at natrc.org. Um, we've also got some Facebook pages. And you can find a schedule. We've got rides from um, Alaska to Florida. Um, and find a ride nearby. Come out. You can, if you're not ready to enter, come volunteer. We always need volunteers. And on the Facebook pages, you can inquire uh, questions about the rides and the events. We've got a good support group out there helping these people get 
involved and find out about the sport. Um, mm-hmm. And just, you know, just come out and give it a go. Well, how did you get started? I'm sorry? How, how did, did you get started? started? Yes. Our local, yes, our local club put on a ride in um, Griffith Park in the Los Angeles area. And I was a junior that rode my horse all over those trails, and the ride manager um, convinced me that I should come enter. So we uh, rode the one mile down to the camp um, from the house. My mom brought her Jeep Wagoneer down, left it, and she walked home. And for the weekend, I slept in the Jeep, <laughs> tied my own house to the roof rack, and uh, <laughs> camped all weekend. Someone must have said me because I don't remember much more than that. Um, <laughs> and, and just gave it a try, and it kind of got me hooked because it was something that you know, I rode my horse all the time anyway, and he was fit, um, as kids do. And mm-hmm. it gave me kind of something that clicked with going out and riding all day, but being a competitive kid who had shown such as, and, and liked that um, competitive aspect. It just kind of mm-hmm. fit real good. Well, what kind of obstacles do you do that you get judged on? So the, the obstacle part is probably the most confusing to people who hear about the sport. Um, the obstacles are to be native and natural to the local terrain. Um, that means if it's naturally, say, a gate that's on the trail that you need to go through, even though mm-hmm. it's made by man, it's still natural and native to that ride. So we were judged from everything from just walking over a log or how quietly a horse might go down through a creek to opening and closing a gate that is um, safe to do so. Or even some of these rides have cement tunnels that go under a freeway because they're rides in the city. Um, These Mm -hmm. are natural things to those rides. So they're not going to set up um, obstacles that would be showing type things that you'd find. You're not going to hang pool noodles from the, the trees and have you ride through them. Those, there's sports for that. Um, we have um, things that will pertain to getting the distance trail ride that you might come across. And that could be that they'll, they'll set up where you ride into a group of trees and have to back out between a couple because if you're mm-hmm. out brush whacking and you get into a situation, you need to have the ability to get out of those situations. So they will set up something, but it's as it would pertain to... Sure, things you, might, yeah, things you might right. actually experience on, on a ride. Hey, Karen, right. I have a quick question. Um, so how many miles mm-hmm. a day will they ride? You say some, some, some are one or two days, but how many miles a day? I would say that um, right now it's averaging the novice rides are right around... 15 to 20, Okay. and the open division, if they have a one-day ride, which isn't as common with the open division, then they're around uh, 25 to 35, depending on the terrain and where the ride's held. Do you get people that do both, that are, that are endurance riders, that also do your rides, or does it tend, is it endurance light? It's, we do get both, and that's kind of a regional thing we found, that um, out in California, we had a lot of riders that would do both. They okay. would cross over mm-hmm. quite a bit between the sports. Where back east, um, the 
the region in the southeast, not as many people. And somewhere between in the, the, the mountain region here in um, Texas, we get a scattering of those people. I've done both for years and um, find that both sports kind of complement each other. And mm-hmm. the horses that do in ATRC often learn yeah. and, and help the condition for uh-huh. endurance. It probably makes right. you more aware of that too, uh, more conscious of making sure that that conditioning is, is in place. Yes. Now, and... do they have doctors that also check out the humans at these stops? Because I've seen some of them come in <laughs> looking pretty dead, so I'm just saying. You know, you know we find that, that, that at least with, with our in ATRC, we have a lot of nurses that ride. <laughs> and I don't know if it's because they can get off the hours. And I know that Karen knows there's a lot of nurses that ride AERC too. And maybe it's just because their hours are more flexible. But um, we actually do have a lot of nurses out there who kind of can help us when we're putting um, <laughs> our fluids. And do you do you see English Western both, or do you is it all, you know, English endurance type tack, or do you see a little bit of everything? Aussie saddles. You know what? We have everything. We've got the pleasure trail rider that's had a nice big quarter horse in their Western tack. They come out and do the sport, and then we've got people who have um, biofane and bright colors from you know one end to the other in their high end endurance saddles. Um, same with the attire on the riders. You've got people out there in their jeans and people in bright riding tights. Whatever like works for them, you know, no discrimination. Yeah, so we know Johnny likes to dress colorfully, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you got to look good out there. We like our bright tights. <laughs> That's right. Well, tell us a little bit about the horsemanship aspect and how that's judged and how important that is to the sport. So the horsemanship judge, we've got judges that are that go through a training program, an apprenticeship program. Um, they have to qualify to get into the judging program um, by doing uh, so many miles in the sport and also placing on a national or regional level um, to some point before they can apply to be a judge. Then they go into the training program where they'll work with other judges at rides and after they get their judge's card, um, this way they're kind of, a, I want to say, accredited or qualified to go out and judge the riders. And the horsemanship aspect, they're judging the riders on um, things that apply to the distance riding and from, from trail equitation as applied to trail riding. So not necessarily the pretty rider that goes around the show ring, but is the rider light and balanced and um, which if you're riding light and balanced on your horse, you're using the job of that horse as he um, traverses the trail all weekend. You're um, also scored on um, safety mm-hmm. and things as simple as don't wrap a lead rope around your hand. We all know most of these things, mm-hmm. but it's nice to have a reminder at times uh, you know, yeah, we had a we had a rider at a ride in June who came off his horse and his reins were wrapped around his thumb and it literally mm. pulled his thumb off. 
Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and it took so, them a while to find the song. Oh. They to find it and reattach it. And I just keep saying you can't make this stuff up, but it does happen. It does happen. So our, you know, our sport because there's a lot of safety-based um, jerking. It's a reminder for those of us who've been around sport a long time on things to safely do. Be it how we tie our horse that they're not mm-hmm. so long that they can easily get a leg over it. Um, when we're leading them, that we're um, not putting ourselves into a um, the, the danger zone, <clears throat> excuse me, of um, our positioning, that when we mm-hmm. turn the horse, we're turning them away from us, not on top of us. Um, if we're lunging them for the veterinarian to inspect them, if you've got too short of a lead rope, then if the horse got fractures, and he kicked out, he could get you. So it's all those mm-hmm. types of things that we probably, most of us know, but often forget. The camp area is also judged on safety and that you don't have, say, a lake left where the horse can get into it um, or a bucket mm-hmm. that has a metal handle laying loose on the ground that if the horse stepped on it, he'd get it caught on his leg. Then mm-hmm. out on the trail, when we're doing the obstacles, um, the horsemanship judge will watch our um, aids and our control and how we are asking the horse to do things. Mm-hmm. And not if the horse doesn't do them as the riders ask, but the horse, because of course they, a thousand pound animals have their own mind at times. But if mm-hmm. the, the rider's giving all the right cues and asking correctly, it doesn't necessarily mean they would be scored poorly if the horse wasn't getting it. Um, I see. So um, traversing through a creek, it's fine to let them stop and drink, but if the judge sees that you um, drop the reins or something or create a dangerous situation, um, also courtesy on the trail. Uh-huh. If they're watching, as they all come to a water trough, that people aren't crowding, aren't putting mm-hmm. them, themselves in positions of getting themselves kicked. Oh no! Wait, wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! We just learned earlier in the show that uh, that uh, long distance riders never fight over water, and SWAT teams never oh, yeah. show up in the middle of the night. <laughs> we learned that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know what this sounds like? Actually, this sounds like Pony Club for distance riders. Um, you know what? I've never heard it called that, but that it, it kind of can be. Because you worry, um, but you worry about all the same things about you know about the, the you know about all those little okay. things that Pony Club teaches you from the time you're little on up mm-hmm. are the things that you're uh-huh. really concerned about, which is terrific because we've all seen the riders who yeah. don't care about any of that stuff. So. Um, right. Yeah. And then we also kind of have a sportsmanship aspect where if I'm at a water trough and my horse is drinking and another rider comes up for his horse to get a drink, I don't just leave. Because if I just head on down the trail, chances are that horse that just came up being a herd animal is going to say, hey, wait a minute. They're not going to drink. They're going to want to go. So we always are courteous to ask the rider behind mm-hmm. but okay, if, you, if I go, do you want me to wait? Same thing with um, pulsing respiration checks, that when my horse is done with his check, I don't just walk off, especially right as the next horse in line is getting checked because that horse's pulse is chewed up. So while the judge, if they see these things, they may make comments on that as to being 
courteous to others. Um, mm-hmm. so it's all, these aren't rules. It's just how things are kind of done. And right, being respectful. And yes, being respectful. Okay. Well, tell us about how many rides and regions are in nature. We've got six regions, and they're averaging, um, it's a, a lot less than the AERC rides. I'll say we've got some regions that right now only have maybe four rides, where other regions have, um, I think, around 13 to 15 each year. Um, okay. Our region down in Texas, we've been averaging having about 13 rides, which is a good number. with our region scattered through Oklahoma, Texas. Arkansas, Louisiana, the rides being scattered out, um, it gives people all over the region a chance to get to some rides and okay. if there's something usually near them. Okay. Is, is, are there any age limits or requirements for the horses or the riders? Um, the horses must be four to do the novice division or the competitive pleasure division and five to do the open division. And riders, we do have a um, minimum age of 10, but different than AERC, at 10 years old, that kid can go out and ride by himself. Well, um, okay. They don't have to ride with an adult. And while most end up usually that the parents are involved, I was a junior when I was taking that ride. I was on my own. Okay, um, okay. So do they have juniors and sponsors that, that ride together? Not normally. We're kind of family based. The juniors that we have usually end up that their parents are involved too. We've only got a few juniors that that their parents are non horsey. So it's um, a lot of family type uh, situations. Or the juniors will hook up with another junior and ride who usually has a parent. Okay. Get a group of juniors all together. Oh, good. Well, Johnny, thank you so much for joining us today. We love having you, and thanks for explaining all about NATRAC. And if people want to learn more, the website is natrc.org. Yes, and thank you guys so much for giving us the opportunity to tell everyone about our sport. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Johnny. Bye. Bye. Well, that was fun, and I was just looking at the schedule. There's one really fun one on this schedule, Jennifer, that you would absolutely love because you've ridden there before and liked it, is they, on June 7th of 8th of next year, they have the French Broad Classic at Biltmore at the Biltmore Estate in Nashville, uh, North Carolina, and there's no more beautiful place than that to go riding uh, anyway. And I know Jennifer's done that before and absolutely loved it. Well, let's take a break here for our song. We I chose Templeton Thompson today, an appropriate song called Tall in the Saddle. And we're going to be right back. We have a couple of guests coming up yet. Uh, Karen has set up here today, Kurt Lander of Renegade Hoof Boots, talking about the importance of boots. And also Dr. Susan, is it Garlinghouse? Is that how you say it? Uh-huh who yes. apparently is quite a legend in the endurance world, and we're glad to have her on, too. Plus, we're going to be talking a little bit later in the show about some upcoming events. You're listening to Horses in the Morning. I am Glenn the Geek, and I am here with Karen and all of her friends talking endurance on Endurance Day here. Right now, Tall in the Saddle with Templeton Thompson. <laughs>
Well, that was Templeton Thompson, Tall in the Saddle. You can find all of her music at templetonthompson.com. You are listening to Horses in the Morning. I am Glenn Geek here with Karen Chatton. And Coach Jen is over in the producer chair. I wanted to remind you, you can listen to all the shows on the Horse Radio Network, all 10 of them now, by going to the App Store on your iOS or Android device and downloading our app. It's the easiest, simplest way to listen. You can either stream our shows or you can download them to your phone and listen to them at your pleasure and we have thousands of people now doing that so if you haven't done it yet it's free and it's easy next up we have one of the sponsors of the endurance episode every month and i wanted to talk to him a little bit about about hoof boots and the importance of them and especially when it comes to long distance trail or endurance riding let's speak to kurt lander of renegade hoof boots good morning kurt good morning good morning good morning karen Thank you. Thank you so much for getting up so early to talk to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, now, tell us a little bit about Renegade Hoof Boots. Let's find out about the company first. Okay, well, the uh, company started, I uh, was born from a need. Um, my wife and I were uh, quite involved in the horse world around 2000 and, and getting deeply involved in uh what I would call the modern barefoot movement, the modern day barefoot movement, and and uh, with the encouragement of our veterinarian, we started training for endurance competition, and we found that there were no hoof boots out there that were really suited to distance riding, and we had tried uh, the various uh, popular offerings with Origins here in the USA, and I got uh, quite involved uh, with. Jamie Jackson and his uh, barefoot group, uh, the American, uh, uh, I can't remember, eight, I can't remember the uh, exact name of it, it changed since then, but he was promoting the uh, Swiss horse boot that came out of Switzerland. And so we tried those different boots, uh, started modifying the Swiss boot and got it working pretty well, but really um, <clears throat> nothing was suited for the, the needs, especially the 50-mile endurance rider. So I had a background in industrial technology and model building um, from an early age, and that gave me the skills I needed to start messing around with uh, hook hoop designs. And we worked long and hard and did a lot of testing, um, and so, really, that's the origin of the Renegade Hoofboot Company is, you know, a need for something better. Now, you know, I know one of the problems with uh, with other hoof boots that people have that are trying to do barefoot and ride for, for distances is the rubbing. You always end up with rub marks. You end up with holes in a lot of cases. And I assume that's something that you were able to, with your articulated design, eliminate a lot of that for the distance riders. Well, that, that is true, and that is the, the one really uh, differentiating feature of the Renegade is the pivoting heel captivator. Um, it's easy to understand. Uh, anybody could walk across the room right now, stand up and walk across the room, and no matter what kind of footwear you're wearing, you will notice that your heel slightly lifts with every step. So the same thing happens in the horse. And so we found that uh, with this pivoting heel captivator design, that allows the heel captivator, their main retention member, to move with the heel. 
And so instead of fighting by gripping and grabbing and, you know, with forces of friction, retaining that boot on the hoof, uh, the pivoting heel captivator uses forces of compression. And so the boot has evolved today um, to where the properly size-fitted, adjusted, and installed will not rub, not even for distances of 100 miles. And Karen is a testament to that. She's Right. I've done, I believe, uh, five one-day hundreds with the Renegade Chapon boots now, and also, you know, several thousands of miles of 50-mile rides on both of my horses with the Renegade Chapon boots. And they really are great boots. They, you know, like Kurt said, if they're properly fitted, you know, they just, they don't rub and they don't cause any problems for the horse. And they're so easy to put on and take off. Now, I I have a question here, though, for you, Karen. Well, you know, I'm sure there's some listeners out there go, saying to themselves, well, why not just put on shoes? You know, why why do you choose to go boots for, for these long-distance rides as opposed to shoes? There's a lot of reasons. Um, you know, metal shoes, um, you know, you need to have a good carrier. You need to have a schedule. And sometimes it's really hard to schedule, you know, shoeing around your ride schedule, especially if you're traveling. So that's tough. You know, there's riders here on this side that are trying to find a farrier to reset their shoes for them so they can do this next ride. And that's not always an easy thing to do. If you're using food, you know, you can usually, a lot of people can um, do a little bit of rafting on their own horse's feet and use the boots themselves. And then that takes, you know, one of those worries out of the equation. Plus, the boots offer great concussion um, abilities and it reduces, I, I mean, I believe, the wear and tear on my horses. You know, that's why they do so many miles and have so few problems. Well, now, I, I do have to ask her, because we've had experience, and I've been in the tack business for, for a lot of years before we before we did this, and one of the other problems with the boots is durability. Is that something you were able to overcome, too? I mean, they just wouldn't last. They would break, basically. Um, well, we did a lot of materials testing, and um, so, yes, I mean, uh, we've gotten the boot, the, the standard Renegade boot, um, will go three to 600 miles depending on how your horse moves and the terrain that you're riding upon. Um, but yes, you know, it's a balance between durability, shock absorption, and so on and so forth. Um, the materials that we make the boot from are polyurethanes, and there's different classes of polyurethanes. Some are good for sliding abrasion, like if you were going down a gravel road, and some are good for cut-tear resistance, like if you were riding on a lava rock or something like that, and uh, you can't always get the perfect blend between those two characteristics. So um, I think overall our customers are quite satisfied with uh, the wear life of the boot. How about studs? Um, Yes, you can use studs. We uh, incorporate actually tire studs into our boot. Oh, really? um, Yes, we bond them into the tread as opposed to a bolt-through design, which is more common in the industry. And I did that because I wanted a buffer of boot material between the head of the stud and the hoof of the horse. Um, Mm -hmm. The traditional bolt-through style, the hoof is sitting right on top of the heads of the studs. And 
So it kind of defeats the purpose of having the shock absorption ability of the boot. If you're going down an icy roadway and the horse is clomping along on the heads of these studs that are bolted through. Yeah. Well, very interesting. And now the most important thing about Renegade Hoof Boots is what, Karen? The most important thing? Well, they're made in the USA. No, that's not it. Well, that's in, good, but that's not the most important thing. They come in a lot of great colors. There you go. They come <laughs> in cool colors. Let's talk about the important see? stuff. You have a lot of terrific cool colors, which is not something you see with <laughs> other horse boots. Yeah, that's well... Right. Yeah, we uh, had a lot of fun with that. You know, we were making prototypes. Uh, orange was the color that we were doing most because we didn't want to lose a, you know, a secretive prototype boot out on the trail. But then we just started, uh, you know, ordering different pigments in, and we had a lot of fun. Um, so it, it's that's something we've incorporated into our manufacturing, which... Uh, can drive a manufacturer crazy if you can imagine trying to stock shelves with all the different sizes and all the different colors. But we've managed to uh, to to deal with that, and our customers have a lot of fun with it too. Yeah, the mm-hmm. endurance Everybody riders. You guys are certainly into your colors. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm looking at a picture of Karen here. I believe this is Karen on your homepage and uh, in her traditional orange color. So she she piped right into your original color there. Yes, yeah. I like orange. They're they're easy to see. You know, you come look down and you already know that there's that they're still there. And <laughs> if one, you know, fighters do lose a boot or have them have one come off, they're easy to find. Um fortunately that doesn't happen very often though. Well, Kurt, this is great. We appreciate you being part of the show, and we recommend everybody go to renegadehoofboots.com. It's renegadehoofboots.com, or Google that, and you'll find them. We also have links in our show notes over at uh, Horses in the Morning. But uh, we do appreciate you being on, and and we're going to be placing an order here, too, because uh, my wife needs some for her horse. So we're going to be doing that very shortly. Thank you, Kurt, for joining us today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. All right. Thanks, Kurt. Thanks. Bye. Okay. Bye. I didn't ask I didn't ask him why he had his uh, boot company in a place where he doesn't get telephone service most of the time, he said. So (laughs) he also (laughs) is a serious rider in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Well, he has landlines. It's just the cell service doesn't work good where he's at. (laughs) All right. Let's uh, introduce our next guest. Well, our next guest is Dr. Susan Garlinghouse. She has um, been writing since 1989. Um, she's been a wide veterinarian. She's on the AARC vet committee and the AARC board. She's been a speaker all over the country and around the world on equine exercise physiology and equine nutrition. Um, she's uh, great with helping riders figure problems out with their horses, especially how it relates to nutrition. And she just uh, recently completed Tevis and all five days of the Grand Canyon XP on her gated horse, John Henry. So welcome to the show, Susan. Good morning, Karen. Thank you very much. Well, so uh, let's hear a little bit about your experience at the Grand Canyon. Let's start out with that. 
Oh, it was it was absolutely great. Um, you know, I, I originally I wasn't planning on on going to Grand Canyon because uh, I had just done Tevis with John Henry. It was his second completion. It was my first completion, and uh, I thought that uh, I would give John a little bit of a, a vacation afterwards, but. Boy, he just turned into a total criminal in the backyard. Uh, you know, he he was apparently missing the part where he was supposed to just stand around uh-huh. with a fruity little rum drink, and uh, he was dragging stall mats around, and dragging a pasture feeder, and taking a rubber mat and then hauling it over uh, a rubber feed pan and taking it over and uh, yeah, flinging it over the the uh, six foot fence into my backyard, hoping to clock a chicken. And, yeah, she, and so we went all right. Have been. Uh, Obviously, conversing and sharing. Obviously. Well, now what is it? I I blamed it all on you and and, well, and Bo that he's doing that. No, well, tell us a little bit about John Henry. How yeah, old is he? he? And and what breed is he? And just give us a little bit of a review on him. Well, uh, John is 13 years old. Uh, he's a, a, a gelding. He's uh, He's been in endurance since about 2007. He started with a, a good friend of mine, uh, Dr. Bruce Weary, in uh, Prescott, Arizona. Um, he originally came from the back hills of Kentucky, but his uh, his background is a little bit murky. He is purportedly an unregistered Tennessee walker, but he kind of doesn't really look like one. He doesn't really move like uh, uh, most of the Tennessee walkers around. So who knows really what's back in the, the wood pile? Well, I was going to say, kind of we, came, we came from, we lived in Kentucky for a long time. The whole state's a little murky sometimes, so it fits. <laughs> exactly, yeah. 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 So uh, I, I tell people that all four legs move back and forth, but in no particular order. Uh, <laughs> we've, uh, we've identified maybe about 20 different gates, only about half of which we can come up <laughs> with a, a name for. But luckily, they're all efficient, and they're all uh, fairly comfortable to ride. Some of them are very comfortable to ride. And uh, since John seems to know his uh, his job very well and, and seems to like it, then I'm uh, I guess I'm I'm not one to uh, uh, there are some gated people that would consider it, it heresy to to you know make him do a stepping pace or a rack or you know whatever gait it was. And I figure well you know John knows better than I do what uh, what's efficient on whatever trail I'm asking him to go. So we've sort of negotiated a detente that I get to choose the speed and he gets to choose the gear. And that's, okay, that's cool. worked out really well for us. <laughs> and you both just passed 3,000 miles. We did, Canyon, both right? at the same ride uh-huh. last week, yeah. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. We uh, we just had an absolutely fabulous time last, uh, well, last let's, week. Let's, and hear about, let's tell us about your fourth day ride on the East Rim. Oh, the fourth day ride. Yeah, that was uh, the 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 thing is is that John is probably one of the steadiest horses on earth, and I've only come off of him twice, and both times were under some pretty unusual circumstances. Uh, one of them was a, a year or two ago when we literally got t-boned uh, by a deer jumping out of the bushes during uh, oh. the first five miles of a fifty-mile ride, and we were cantering along at a pretty good, about a 14-mile-an-hour pace, and all of a sudden this uh, deer comes out, and John uh, disagreed with what the, the deer had in mind, and he uh, he spun, and I kind of kept on going over his shoulder and landed on some rocks, and then this uh, on day four, we, uh, we'd we already done the uh, the first three days, and uh, I, uh, I decided to, to slow down, and we were just kind of podunking along a little bit. 
and uh, we had a pretty significant thunderstorm cell come come into the the area, and we were all riding in our rain jackets. Uh, Karen, you and I had ridden together a little bit, and then you'd gone on mm-hmm. a, uh, ahead, and uh, we were going along what they, they say was the, the east rim. I'm pretty sure there was a canyon <laughs> to our right, but you but couldn't, you couldn't see, see it, it because it was so <laughs> socked in with clouds. And uh, we kept on seeing some uh, some lightning flashes and some thunder coming along, and they kept on getting closer and closer, and Don didn't seem to mind, so, you know, he, he never even twitched. And all of a sudden, I have no idea exactly what happened, but there was this huge flash, and it just this cubs. Bam! Like there was a bomb going off somewhere in the very close uh, vicinity, and next thing I knew, I was on the ground in a mud puddle, on my back, looking up, going, "What the hell was that?" Oh my god! And I look up, and John is standing about fifty feet away, and his eyes are bugging out of his head, and he's got his his feet spread real far apart, and he was looking at me like, "What was that?" <laughs> and uh, so I I kind of got myself up out of the mud puddle and uh I I whistled for him and, and God bless John. He as soon as he hears the whistle he, he kinda went, Oh, all right, all is right with the world and he came back over and uh he uh he brought me into the uh the, the lunch check and uh I was having some pretty bad muscle spasms after coming off but uh mm-hmm. I uh I was carrying some uh Tylenol with me, and and uh, John carried me on into the, the finish line like a, a good boy. And now this, well, that's uh, a good. A, there's a tip. Does Tylenol work for lightning strikes? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm not sure if it was a direct strike or not. My uh, some of my friends have pointed out that uh, they're they're not sure if they would see any difference in me otherwise if I'd actually been directly struck by lightning or not. Um, I said probably my hair might be a little curlier. So, yeah. uh, but, but apparently, you know, since Tylenol is what I had, so Tylenol is what I took. So. I know, and Glenn, and not only did she finish that day, she rode the next day. And then her horse received the overall best condition award for all five days of flying. Oh, all wow. of all the horses did all five days. So that was and luckily they don't take rider condition into uh, into <laughs> consideration. When they just look at the horse and they just kind of go, "Okay, the horse looks great, but man, that rider is looking a little yeah, bit." Yeah, it's good. Tylenol doesn't test. You know it, right. Susan. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. Uh, <laughs> I know. Well, but it was okay. a terrific ride. Well, Susan, tell us a little bit about, since you're, you know, an expert on nutrition, everybody always comes to you for advice on feeding their endurance horses. So what do you recommend for feeding an endurance horse? Well, uh, I think, you know, it, one of the, the most common mistakes in trying to feed pretty much any high-performance horse, but certainly endurance horses, is trying to go straight to another bucket of supplements when you're you're trying to... Uh, to make sure your horse is healthy as possible. And I think that is a mistake because very often adding another bucket causes more problems mm-hmm. than it really solves. And this is not to say that supplements are a bad thing. I think you just need to be very precise and educated about exactly what you're doing when you add mm-hmm. another supplement. So what I tell people is, first of all, you need to have high-quality forage in front of an endurance horse uh, most of the time, 24-7. Now, your mm-hmm. new horses are uh, exceptions to that rule because I've, I've seen your horses 
Uh-huh. Let's, let's say especially cheap is a long ways away from starvation, and, and you have to basically, you know, put out food by the handful for him, or uh, he's a, a total air fern. But a lot of endurance horses, because they're burning so many calories, uh, they they really need to have a lot of food going through the the system. And the, the first and foremost building block needs to be high quality forage. So uh, I'm in Southern California, and so I put several different types of uh, grass hay in, in front of John. He can uh, kind of pick at whatever it is he wants. Uh, I don't mind feeding a lot of alfalfa. Uh, a little bit is fine, but I like to uh, – I tell people to think of it as the sauce, not the spaghetti. It's, it's more of a uh, condiment mm-hmm. to add on top of uh, grass hays. Um, I, uh, I do – add on concentrate feeds, but I don't like feeding a lot of straight grains. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I really tell people that I prefer one of the, the very high quality, uh, complete performance feeds that, that are available now. And what's nice is in that the past 10 to 15 years, we've gotten a lot more choices in very high quality uh, feeds that are supplemented uh, in a, a complete package and meant specifically for endurance horses. Um, and uh, and I, I really like those. They, uh, you've already had the numbers crunched for you. They're generally uh, a beet pulp uh, base, which I'm, mm-hmm. I'm queen of, of beet pulp. Uh, I, I've been talking about beet pulp for probably 20 years now. Uh, and uh, I, I like the super fibers. I like the, that the, uh, the energy in them is, is balanced so that it's not uh, grains that have a super high glycemic index. So you don't kind of mm-hmm. get the sugar spikes and then the, uh, the insulin surge. And then that actually has some detrimental effects on energy production in endurance horses. Because endurance horses don't have to just produce energy for a few minutes. They have to produce steady energy for hours and hours and hours and sometimes days. Uh, uh-huh. So it's, it's very important that we, we consider uh, not only are we getting the right amount of calories in these horses, but also the correct type of calories that we're getting a long, steady burn, not just a rocket fuel that lasts for a half hour and then it's gone. Okay. What do you recommend for feeding a horse, say, prior to riding and also during and post-ride? Well, um, there's some really interesting research, and this goes back again to those glycemic spikes and the insulin, that I, I think it it's a mistake for riders to get up at 3 or 4 in the morning to go outside and uh, and put a high-concentrate meal in front of their, their horse before the start, thinking that it's going to help them through the day. Um, it is better to feed them a high-glycemic meal or whatever concentrate that, that you normally uh, feed the, the horse, feeding the mash uh, a day before. That's going to top up his fuel tanks, and that's going to provide him all of the glycogen, which is, uh, they, they call it the animal form of starch. It's uh, it's uh, high-energy uh storage form of glucose that is going to be broken down during uh, during exercise to maintain blood glucose during exercise. Um, if you've already got it in the fuel tank, your fuel tanks are already topped up, whereas if you feed it just before a ride, 
then what you're doing is you're spiking the blood glucose. And at the start, generally, you don't need a whole lot more energy. Sometimes it's like riding rockets for the first right. 10 miles anyway. Uh-huh. Um, but at the same time, what it does is it's going to cause an increase in insulin. An insulin's job is to take all of that blood glucose and put it into storage in the muscle and in the liver. Now, that's not a bad thing, but at the same time, what insulin is doing is it is inhibiting the fatty acid pathways that endurance horses rely heavily on for endurance exercise. Mm -hmm. So that is a problem because that glucose spike doesn't last for that long. But that insulin surge and the inhibition of the fat-burning pathways, that lasts for several hours. So it's almost like you're choking off your your main pathway of energy production during exercise. So uh, I'm not a big fan of feeding horses uh, right before the ride, or at least not feeding concentrates. But mm-hmm. I do like them having forage. They should be standing knee-deep in forage uh, uh-huh. for days before a ride and certainly all night long. Uh, during the ride itself, uh, I'm a, a real big proponent of trying to get some food into them as often as possible. We were really lucky last week at Grand Canyon. There was lots of grass along the, uh-huh. the side of the trail. And one of the best skills an endurance horse can have is that grab a bite and go. Uh, you right. get, uh, they sort of stop, they grab a, a quick mouthful of grass, and then they, they chew it as we continue on down the trail. Uh, at, the, uh, uh, at the checks, I, I really I like to stress the horses getting forage. They need that bulk to maintain gut motility, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and eating forage helps drive the thirst response, and dehydration is probably the biggest hurdle for us to overcome during uh, endurance, especially in hot weather. So forage is a, is a big deal with that. Um, but a lot of the times, horses just, they've, they've got to have mash. They, they really, uh, it, it's not that they have to have it, but, boy, they are really asking for it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, if, if that's what they really, really want, then, okay, I'm going to let them have at least a little of that. But I'm trying to to I'll maybe dump their mash on top of their hay or somehow mix it in together or I'll give them a little bit of mash for a couple of minutes and then try and get them back to, to whatever the hay and I make sure that uh, at least John, he likes having a little smorgasbord in front of him so I'll have maybe three different types of hay uh, stuffed into the crew bag so that he can eat what he wants to. Mm-hmm. And then after the ride, how, what do you recommend for um, refueling and um, helping your horse recover? Well, you know, it, it used to be that they uh, they thought that right after a ride, horses were much better at absorbing uh, carbohydrates and utilizing those to refuel their, their glycogen. Um, there's maybe some new research that that is not quite as true as we thought. And uh, we're, we're still kind of trying to, to figure that out. Um, I do like having a, a really sloppy, wet mash for mm-hmm. uh, for the horses right after a ride. And John in particular, he, he wants what uh, what I call his soup. I'll, I'll take a, a pound or so of one of the, the con- uh, concentrate, the commercial feeds, 
John uh, John likes uh, purine ultium, so that's uh, a lot of, of what I feed him. And I will soak that down, but I'll add so much water on top of it that he has a couple inches of soup sitting on top. And mm-hmm. so he drink easily a couple gallons of the soup before he gets down to the mash. And that's what I really want him to do is be drinking as much fluid as possible. Uh, again, I want him eating lots and lots and lots of forage. And I'll feed him a couple of, of small mashes, uh, especially if it's a multi-day where he's going to be going out again the, the next day. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, you know, I'll let him have uh, probably maybe three or four pounds of, of mash through the, the afternoon and, and the evening. But again, I make sure that uh, whatever mash he eats, uh, he pretty much has it finished by midnight so that he's just eating forage for the rest of the, the night. And that's that's worked out really well. With energy production, he's uh, apparently able to, he keeps on going day after day after day. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. I haven't done the, the really long rides like you have, but he's done up to five-day multi-days. Uh-huh. And do you feed um, in the trailer as well when you're coming to and from a ride? I do. Uh, again, I really like the sloppy mashes, and there's some some good uh, good feeds that I've been sort of goofing around with. But if I take a mash and I uh, soak it down with a lot of water, then it, so it's consistency of uh, like a sloppy oatmeal, then mm-hmm. even traveling in the trailer, if I put it into a, a big deep pan and I chain that in place and have it clipped in place so it's, it's nice and solid and it's up high enough that he can't put up and, and put a, a hoof into it, which uh-huh. otherwise he will try and do, uh, then it it has a couple gallons of water in front of him, and mm-hmm. it is a mash that is very palatable uh, and and of high value to him. And during a say maybe a, a eight to ten or twelve hours of uh, of traveling, then he'll go through you know a couple pounds of of mash and a couple gallons of water, and he'll actually ingest more total fluids during that ride than he otherwise would. Mm-hmm. Hey, doc, doc, Dr. Garlinghouse, I had a quick question for you. Um, we're, uh-huh. We are running out of time here, so we'll have to make it quick. Uh, what do you, how do you feel about the alfalfa cubes and the mini cubes, uh, soaking them and using them as part of a mash? I think they're fine as long as they are soaked down really well. The problem with them is that uh, as horses age, they don't produce enough saliva. If their teeth aren't in good shape, and if they are dehydrated, then dehydrated horses, one of the first ways they're going to be compromised is in saliva production. So I, I'm fine with them as long as they're soaked down. Um, I'm not a big fan of them being fed in the, the dry pellet form right. or in the cube form because I think it's much more likely that the horses are, are going to be prone to an esophageal obstruction or, or what's commonly called choke. Right, right. Um, and that can be a problem. Okay, cool. But I think they're just fine as when they're they're soaked. Good. Right. Well, well, we are just about out of time this season, unfortunately, because we could ask her questions all day long. So we just want to thank you for joining us this morning. We appreciate um, all your advice and um, look forward to maybe talking talking to you again sometime in the future. That would be great. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Susan. Thank you. Yeah, she's very interesting and explained things very well. I liked her. Right, and she does have a website for those that want to go and read. She's published all sorts of papers on 
all sorts of topics relating to endurance horses. And her website is allcreaturesanimalhealth.com. Allcreaturesanimalhealth.com. I like like that. That's cool. <laughs> That's, <very> uh-huh. <laughs> That's fun. And it's a good website. I went over there and she has a lot of different articles that you can find there. And uh, from all different, from feeding to emergencies to, you know, it's kind of like a, uh, an, a distance rider's, uh, uh, you know, health report over there. It really does. Exactly. Does a good exactly. job. A lot of good information there. A lot of good stuff. Well, okay, so shall we talk about some of these upcoming events that we have? Yeah, real quickly. Why don't you go through some of the ones coming okay. up? Well, the next ride I have coming up is here in Southern Utah, Outlaw and Virgin, September 12th through the 15th. We have an LD and a 50 each day for four days, and we're running, riding around some of the most beautiful country on just about, uh, of all the places I've ever ridden, this is one of the most beautiful, most spectacular rides. Well, I gotta um, we ask you. Have, I gotta ask you how it got its mm-hmm. name, Outlaw and Virgin. And well, originally years ago, there was a ride that went through Southern Utah called the Outlaw Trail, and unfortunately, a lot of that area was put into wilderness designation, so we can no longer use most of that. But we still can use part of the trail. Um, the Virgin part comes from um, being on the Virgin River. Okay. All right. Good. I knew oh, there had there to be a, an explanation other than what I was thinking about, so that's why I asked. Uh-huh. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you could. That, that is kind of a play on words there. Okay. Um, so, uh, we've also got the Virginia City 100 coming up in Virginia City, Nevada. It's put on by the NASCAR Club September 21st. It's the 46th year for this historical uh, one-day 100, and people can find more information about that on the NASCAR website, NASCR.org. The AARC National Championship is coming up. September 20th is at 50, and September 22nd is a 100-mile ride at the City of Rock in Idaho. And more information can be found on endurance.net. We also have in October the AHA, Arabian Horse Association Dis- Distance National, October 26th. There's a 25 and a 50-mile ride. October 27th, there's a two-day CPR. And uh, October 24th, a Monday 100, and it's at the Jim Edgar Panther Creek State Park in Chandlerville, Illinois. And more information on that ride can be found at arabianhorses.org. Well, once again, Karen, this has been a lot of fun. I just find this uh, episode we do once a month with you fascinating, and and uh, because endurance riders are so much fun, every guest you had have been have been terrific, and and you're always full of stories, and I love hearing them, and I know our <laughs> I know our listeners do too, because actually, oh, I have not only is it your birthday today, but I have to congratulate you because the endurance episode last month was the most downloaded episode of Horses in the Morning. So, uh, well, that's. Awesome. Great. So maybe it's just because you have a lot of friends. I don't know. Um. Maybe. Well, yeah, and endurance writers are, you know, they are a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's a great group of people to be involved with. It's, hey, uh, what other group uh, can get a SWAT team sport. in at midnight in the Grand Canyon? I can't not think of one. Not too many. Not too many. <laughs> 
Well, Karen, thank you so much again. Karen is here the second Tuesday of every month with Endurance Day. We want to thank your sponsors as well, Action Rider Tack and, of course, Renegade Hoof Boots for sponsoring this episode every month. And we wanted to remind you that you can find all of the past episodes of Horses in the Morning at HorsesInTheMorning.com. We are here every day, so join us at 9 a.m. Eastern. We have a lot of fun on the show. If you've only listened to Karen's episode, give the other episodes a try. I think you'll like it. Tomorrow morning, we do have, because it is September the 11th, we do have a very special episode for you. It's something I put together last year for the 10th anniversary of 9-11, and it's a tribute that uh, we, we did to 9-11 and to uh, everybody that lost their lives, and we're going to replay that tomorrow morning here at Horses in the Morning, and that's as as of the request of a couple of our listeners who wanted to hear it again. So we will be replaying that tomorrow morning. We'll be back here live then. We'll have another recorded episode for you Thursday. Back live on Friday with Jamie and Really Bad Ads. Get your ads into Jennifer at horseradionetwork.com. We'll announce tomorrow on Facebook what the prizes are there. And don't forget to download the uh, app at the iOS or Android store. You can listen to all our shows on the app. Endurance Riders, it's a perfect way to kill time. Listening to our shows, one thing we will help you do with our shows is help you kill time. And we'll do it in an entertaining, fun way. You'll be laughing on the trail, and everybody will wonder what you're doing. So uh, if you want to if you want to look and like a... Step, we, yeah, go ahead. We just can't make up these stories. They really happen. <laughs> and tell us what your website is, Karen. Um, KarenChatton.com. And that's C-H-A-T-O-N? Uh-huh. KarenChatton.com. Well, Karen, best of luck this week. And, uh, you know, we we wish you the best on the trail. Thank you. It was fun and look forward to talking to you next month. All right. See you, everybody. Keep uh, the horse between you and the ground, Karen. (laughs) 